and have a seat. NBC, uh, great to see everybody this morning. If you're joining us online, uh, we're so glad to have you with us. This morning we'll be in Genesis chapter 2. Uh, so if you have a Bible, Bible app, and want to get it warmed up, uh, go ahead and do that. Quick reminder about a couple of things as you're flipping. Um, one, we got an Israel tour uh, info meeting after the second service up in the black box. If Even if, especially actually, if you're already registered to go, come join us. We'll We'll eat and we'll talk and we'll give you some more details on that. Uh, so if you're interested, come on back. Go get a cup of coffee somewhere and come back after this, after the 11. Uh, we'd love to have you up there in the black box after the 11. So somewhere around 1230-ish, something like that up there. Uh, and then also be sure to stay to the end of the service today. All you, you do anyways, I'm sure. But if today, Marcus Preciado uh, will be telling you some exciting stuff about growth groups kind of being uh, retooled and relaunched uh, beginning today. So uh, lots of great things going on here at NBC, including starting a new series called Good Work. Your life is divided into thirds, roughly. If you're lucky, a third of your life you'll be asleep. That's, those are wonderful hours. Uh, if you uh, get the opportunity to, and you work most of your life from the time you hit at least uh, 21, 22, something like that, and there another third you will be working. And then you have another third, which is the life that you've got beyond that, where you're not working uh, and and you're not doing whatever. Now, some of you may be saying already in your mind, okay, well, I'm a stay-at-home mom or parent. That's your vocation. When I use the word vocation throughout this series, what I mean is what you are called to do by God on a daily basis. Now, a lot of people use that word in very spiritualized terms, but in reality, you you can be a... a, uh, uh, you know, a salesman, you can be a teacher, that's a vocation. Being a student might be your vocation right now. You might be going to high school or going to college or, or something like that. Um, but the, what you do between Monday and Saturday, not just the part where you're asleep, not just the part where you're trying to figure out how to be a good mom or dad or, or, or kid in the house, but what you're doing often between the hours of 8 and 5. Some of you I know probably have night shifts and things like that or irregular hours or or it comes in spurts where you work obscene hours for condensed lengths of time and that kind of stuff. But whatever that is in your life is what we're talking about for the next four weeks, all right? Why work matters is kind of today. Then we're going to talk about work ethic, why that matters to God, why work ethics matter to God. Uh, I, I am blessed to be the confidant of many bosses, a lot of people that run things. They, they, I think they feel like they don't have anybody else to talk to. They need somebody that they think they can rant to and have it kept private or secret and get some advice on things. You would be shocked at what they are disillusioned by, and a lot of it has to do with the workers. Now, ironically, the workers are often disillusioned by their bosses, so you have all of that, right? Gallup says 85% of American workers are disengaged, and what they mean by that is, I am unplugged, I am not actually doing my best, and I am disinterested or exasperated by what I do on a daily basis, 85 5%. That's a lot. Now, the number one leader for cause is their relationship with their boss. So we'll talk about that, right? Because that seems to be a pain point. And overall, one of the big principles that I want us to understand biblically is that ultimately God sees himself as your boss. So regardless of what your vocation is, teacher, student, stay-at-home parent, corporate tycoon, you still have a boss in heaven who is benevolent and kind, but also calls things out of us. 
I want you to think, just kind of as we get going, about the worst job you've ever had. Maybe the one you have now. I hope not. But if you go back, think about every dirty job you've ever done from the time you started working. Oftentimes, if you're 15 and a half or whatever, you're just chomping at the bit to get money in any way, shape, or form you can get it. So you take whatever job you can get your hands on. I didn't, I, I had gone through all of the jobs I thought until literally about an hour ago. I was like, I felt like there was something else that was worse. These jobs aren't that bad. They felt bad, but they weren't really weren't that bad in hindsight. And then I was like, oh yeah, I had left a chapter out. Knife salesman. Yes. Uh, any of you guys ever sell Cutco knives or, or own, I own Cutco knives. There we go. All right. So uh, the idea was this. First thing they do is they I mean, if you're a 16-year-old guy, is there really anything cooler than a knife that cuts through a penny? It's awesome. They break out these big cleavers, scissors, and they show you what these things can cut through and why these things are awesome. They are good knives. We've, we've owned a set since uh, we got married, and those things are still sharper than anything. Um, good knives. Bad salesmen, though, turned out to be. Uh, I got so fascinated with the knives, and basically they make you buy the knives. So you have to buy the stuff that, that you know, your demo set, basically, that you're, you're, you're selling. So I, I, it, was, it was not cheap either. Those of you who bought a set of Cutco's eventually, you know it's not cheap. So I ended up buying a set, but I couldn't sell anything. Now, I don't know why they thought it would be a good idea to take. Here's, here's some of the sharpest knives in the world. The right candidate for this is a 16-year-old guy. Um, I guess door-to-door grenade salesman wasn't a possibility or something but it's a miracle actually there aren't you know people missing fingers all over all over San Diego and beyond at the hands of Cutco but it was cool I went through but I realized I don't yet know how to sell things and so I ended up losing money on on the job because I never sold enough knives to pay for the knives I bought so I worked for like three four months and I was like I, this stinks. I'm not making any money. In fact, this costs me money. What am I doing here? I remember working, I've, I've used it several times, uh, different aspects of it here, uh, working after Christmas in the men's department at JCPenney. Horrible job. Uh, from a sense of people are screaming at you, they're trying to, to you know, uh, do bogus things to JCPenney. They're returning stuff that they only, the outfit they bought for the Christmas dinner that they wanted to go, and they bring it back, and you can't take it back, and they think you have the right to do it or not do it, rather than it being stored policy. So they just scream at you. They tell you you're never going to mount anything. You stink. You this, you that. They throw stuff at you. That was bad. And then I started to think, what was it made them bad? Yes, there was a financial piece. In one case, I was losing money working. That's not a good life plan. And the other, it was, what am I doing? Like, what is the point? Why am I doing this to myself? I don't matter. Everything is futile. I fold the clothes. Somebody comes in. They're not watching their kids. Their kids grab them, throw them all over the floor. I got to go pick them up, fold them back again, put them back there. Get the price tag out. You know, and then no matter what you do, here comes somebody else. They pick it up, and you, they, you can see, that, look, the smalls are on the top. Sir, you are not a small. Okay, so let's, let's, let's get out, let's get real, and uh, be kind. Don't just go dig, throw them all to the side, and do whatever. Somebody's got to go back and fold those things up. So no matter what I did, it felt futile. I've heard many people 
Say the same thing. Stay at home moms. No matter what I do, house just gets messy every day before I can finish cleaning the thing. They come through, they mess it up, and all I do, I spend all day just cleaning up knick-knacky little knicky-knack things all over the floor. Uh, they, they keep trashing the place, you know, and nobody ever even seems to be grateful for it, you know, and it's like, what is the point? Or you got that middle management job where, you know, you, you know, you do something important, but you couldn't put your finger on what it was. It's I go in there and I, I have meetings about things that are very important somehow. I can tell because my boss thinks they're important and the people underneath me seem scared. So I go in, I go out. Yes, I do very importanty things. I do, I think. You go in, you go out, but you don't know. It's like, what, what do I even do? What is the point of this? Waiters and waitresses, they, they rarely go through a day without, you know, getting torched by somebody who is unhappy with the coffee being cold or not getting what they needed or whatever. If you need to hear somebody talk about uh, my daughter, my middle daughter right now, Olivia, is a hostess at Olive Garden right now and, and has had some wonderful encounters with the public who shows up with a party of 38 at closing time. And trying to, to tell them, no, you, 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 can't, you can't take the whole room, and we don't have any servers in the room, and then watch the dynamics. And so you go home. What am I doing? This is awful. Thanks, Eve, some people say, right? <laughs> but I want to dispel that one today, too, okay? We have a phrase, it's a dirty job, but somebody's got to do it. Thank God it's Friday. Why? Because we're all miserable between Monday and Friday. Friday at 5, there's a reason they call it happy hour. Because work is over. You want to try getting a quality customer service call at about 3 on Friday? Zero chance. They've already clocked out. They're fantasizing about what they're going to do. Because their torture is at an end. And I keep thinking to myself, God has to have something better, right? There has to be something better than that out there. Jesus had a job. Not just preacher. He was a carpenter or a stonemason, depending on who you listen to. But he did something with his hands. Paul was a tent maker. Peter was a fisherman. David was a shepherd. There are a lot of different trades that went on back in those days. But, you know, in the Old Testament, it was very, very... Uh, much farmer or builder, uh, and then, or herdsman. By the time you get to the New Testament, you've got more structures kind of going up, and you have woodwork and things like that going on, craftsmen. But I thought to myself at one point, I go, so all this, this anguish about what we do with a third of our life is because of the fall? So I went back, and I did some digging on it. I go, no, it's not actually. Because from the very beginning, when God creates the Garden of Eden, his plan was that we would work the garden. Genesis 2.15, here it is. The Lord took the man, by the way, this is pre-Eve. The Lord took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. To work it and take care of it. So when God pictures this ideal world at the beginning, Eden, before the fall, he pictures us as in the garden, working. 
Now, if you were kind of grew up in spiritual things, you might have thought, no, the fall is what we were supposed to be on like eternal naked vacation. But now, because of the fall, we all have to work and our life has to be miserable. No, no. That when God creates human life, it has a higher end than leisure, than just the eternal Sabbath. You can see it even in the fact that as God makes the world, on day seven, he what? All right. TGI seven. He creates a rest period as an example for us, not because he's tired. So God is working and Adam is working. Shortly after man is created, God puts him in the garden to work it and to take care of it. We were supposed to work before the fall happens. It's not, work is not the result of sin. Work was a part of God's original design for humanity. What changes with the fall is not that we were once born for vacation and now we must work. What the curse does is it takes us from the beauty of gardening to mowing the yard in the heat. It takes us from being able to tend the garden for joy and makes it a labor. It means when we work the ground, it works us too. So whether we have responsibilities or not has not changed. What changes is our privileges go from privileges to obligations. Now, quite literally, as we're about to read, every rose has its thorn. The child of the 90s, that brings me great joy to say that. Genesis 3, 17 to 19. Here's what he says to Adam after the fall. He says, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit. <laughs> I guess I need to finish that sentence. <laughs> because you listened to your wife, Adam, you're, you're, you're blessed. No, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns, there's your thorn, and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Let me say it again. Work itself is not a punishment. And in fact, he doesn't seem to curse Adam as much as he curses the ground, knowing that the ground is where we're going to draw the bulk of what we eat from and, and all of those kinds of things. I mean, again, I used to think work was somehow a punishment for the fall. It's just like childbirth was going to be a thing anyway, guys. We were going we to be having babies before he took the apple. But there's a difference. Pain. Just like work. I mean, there is a difference, right, between... Grilling a steak in your backyard for fun and having to grill 40 steaks in 10 minutes at a restaurant because if you don't, the customers are going to be mad and your business could be shut down. There's a difference between throwing a tennis ball around in your backyard and gently clipping the shrubs here and there and looking at the flowers and pruning things. And trying to mow 25 yards in a Saturday to put bread on the table for your family. There is a difference between reading the meditations of Marcus Aurelius at night, at home, 
fireplace. And trying to do it from 12 a.m. to 4 a.m. because you have a test at 8 o'clock in the morning. Right? Okay, so if it's not occurrence, and now there's tension between us and work, okay, then what are we supposed to take from this? Well, every rose now has its thorn. We have this expression, TGIF, right? But is there a place, is there a place where that kind of curse could be reversed? Not, not, not that we don't do anything anymore, but where the enmity between our work and us begins to get soothed. Is there a place where we could actually wake up on a Monday thanking God that it's Monday? Is that possible? I think so, actually. That's what we're going to talk about. Because every day that you are alive, God has something for you to do. He gave you the job that he gave you for a particular reason. But as our culture has changed, I think our despair over work has, has also grown. And I think part of that is not necessarily longer hours. The type of work we do has changed dramatically. I'm reading a fascinating little book called uh, Shop Class as Soulcraft by a guy named Matthew Crawford. It's about how we don't do as much physical work anymore. And that, that ha- how that has begun to kind of shape the soul of society. In it, he writes this. A decline in tool use would seem to betoken a shift in our relationship to our own stuff. We are now more passive and more dependent. And indeed, there are fewer occasions for the kind of spiritedness that is called forth when we take things in hand for ourselves, whether we fix them or we make them. What ordinary people once made... They now buy. And what they once fixed for themselves, they replace entirely or hire an expert to repair, uh, to repair whose expert fix often involves replacing an entire system because, because some minute component has failed. Is he off? I mean, there is some sort of spiritual connection between our work and our soul. There is. It's right there in Genesis 2. It's why we care about that pair of shoes that your wife keeps telling you to throw away. The old baseball glove that you cling to and you can't figure out. The old ball cap. The classic car that you had from high school. That's seen better days, but it's yours. It's a classic. It's a classic. It's the things that we have touched with our hands that we get bonded to. The things we've lived life with. That's why I think parents value what their kids make at school more than they value the new fact they learned. It's the the Play-Doh snowman with the crooked arms that means the world, not just the fact that they figured out where Kamchatka is on the map. It doesn't mean as much. That's a question we're thinking about. The significance of our work. Because once we get 21 or so, again, you've got a vocation before that as a student. But you're going to spend 30 or hours for the next 50 years. I mean, that is a lot of time. That's more time than you're likely to spend asleep. And yet, we don't talk about it that much, I think, uh, in subtle ways. We might even create these mental frameworks where we kind of talk about our spiritual lives. Or we talk about life at home. But there's something missing. There's a big gap there. 
It's like, well, what happened about the rest of the day, most of the day? So let's talk about what it means to be a disciple in the workplace. Let's ask together, how does God see our work? What does he think of the job we're doing? Does he care what kind of job I do? Why does anybody have to work in the first place? How can I be a better worker? How can I be a better Christian as a result of the work I do? All right, so let's take aim together and try to get our heart around how God sees our work. Let's start with uh, Martin Luther. Now, it goes back to the Bible. We already read Genesis 2. It's hard to go back much further than that. But if you go to where we kind of get some of our modern-day conceptions, and I actually think some of the, the better parts of it, Luther played a big role. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, observe Luther, we pray, give us this day our daily bread, and he does. And he gives us our daily bread by means of the farmer who planted and harvested the grain, the baker who made the flour into bread, and the person who prepared the meal. We might add, if we wanted to, the truckers who haul the produce, the factory workers in the processing plant, the warehouse workers, the wholesale distributors, the stock boys, the lady at the checkout counter, uh, also playing their own role are the, the bankers and the futures investors, the advertisers, the lawyers, the agricultural scientists, the mechanical engineers, and a lot of other people involved in our economic system here in the U.S., All of these people are involved in bringing you your morning bagel. We just don't think about it. Before you ate this morning, you probably gave thanks to God for your food, and rightfully so. It's him, make no mistake, providing, as the psalmist says in Psalm 111.5, he provides food for those who fear him and also to all flesh. He does so, though, by using other human beings, not because he has to, but because he chooses to. We have been called to participate with God in what he does here in this world. Not just at the church level, not just even at the home level, but everywhere. So we are a conduit by which God provides for humanity. That's why, for instance, in the Bible, laziness or an unwillingness to work is a big deal to God. It's not a small deal. It's an a huge deal. Second Thessalonians 3.10. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. A person's unwillingness to work, from a biblical perspective, is not just a personal choice. It is something that has ramifications for their family, society at large. And we'll talk about work ethic later, but for now, let this one sink in. This is Ecclesiastes 10.18. Through laziness, the rafters sag. Because of idle hands, the house leaks. That there is something that God does in the world through people and what they do with their work. Now, it's still God who's responsible for providing it. I want to be clear about that. But he could give it to us directly if he chose to. He could just drop manna on the ground every morning like he did for the Israelites. However, most times, God chooses to work to provide blessings to people through other people through their talents, and in different capacities. This is the Christian doctrine of vocation. To use another of Luther's examples, God could have chosen to populate the earth by creating each new person from the dust, as he does with Adam. But instead, he chose to create new life through the vocation of husbands and wives, fathers and mothers. God calls women and men together and grants them this unfathomable ability to have children. He calls people into families so that through the love and care of the parents extending to the kids, 
he cares for his children. This is the doctrine of vocation. So when a parent, for instance, doesn't take seriously what God has called them to do as a parent, that is a very big deal to God. Because he chose them to be a conduit for his care for his children. And so you play a pivotal role as a parent. Everyone and everything ultimately looks back to God for his provision. But in God's design, we humans also participate in his ongoing provision for the world through our own work. God is the source of all of our lives, all life on this earth. But the means through which he provides are typically means in which we participate, not of necessity, but by choice. And that's significant. What it means is wherever you go and wherever you stand at any point in time, God has something for you to do. And it also means that whatever it is that you put your hand to has meaning. It has cosmic meaning. God is the source of all of our food. He's the source of our medicines. He's the source of non-material provisions that we need. But in getting food and medicine and non-material goods, uh, even things like counseling to us, he uses human workers by choice. Farmers and truck drivers and chemists and pharmacists and psychiatrists. It's part of the cultural mandate from Genesis 2. When God creates the world and he creates the garden and he sets man in it to work it. Now the pain we feel as we do it That's the result of the fall, but not whether or not we would do it. When a psychiatrist is sitting there, and for the eight billionth time, they give the advice to the person who's on the other side, the receiver of care, and they let it go in one ear and out the other, and it frustrates the psychiatrist or the psychologist. That's a Genesis 3 problem. Every rose has its thorn. But not the work itself. So there's an echo of Eden in what they're doing. And every single person, some people have responsibilities that impact lots and lots and lots of people. But I want to make the case that every single one of us impacts more people than we think we do. We just do. The Jewish Talmud contains, the Jewish Talmud's a collection of rabbinical teaching, uh, not in the Bible. Uh, it's just kind of extraneous, but it's fascinating to read. Uh, It contains a riddle. Why didn't God create a bread tree if he meant man to live on bread? Here's what Michael Frost and Alan Hirsch say in their book, The Shaping of Things to Come. They answer that riddle with this. God prefers to offer us a grain and invites us to buy a field and plant the seed. He prefers that we till the soil while he sends the rain. He prefers that we harvest the crop while he sends sunshine. Why? Because he would rather we become partners with him in creation. Of course, God could simply supply our every need and solve our every problem. But God invites us into creative partnership with him. He supplies the earth, the air, the water, the sun, our strength, our lungs that breathe. And then he asks us to work with him. Partnership. We're not peers, that's not what it means, but we participate. Uh, Challenge for the week before you even leave the building. Create a purpose statement or a mission statement for your job where you find your place, that, that, that articulates your place in God's plan. What is it that you do that participates in what God is doing in the world. 
I'll give you an example. For a waiter or waitress, it might be, I help ensure that people are fed and help provide the environment in which they can have important moments in their lives. That's what you do. It's like at church. I, I've, I've shared this with you before. Sometimes it's like there are jobs that are the most important here uh, on a weekend are some of the most thankless and, and can get passed over quite easily. Slide clicker, camera operator, security detail, children's check-in. Well, slide clicker doesn't sound very sexy. Am I right, slide clickers? In the back right now, click and slide. Okay. But slide clickers are the ones that make sure that you hear the message and experience worship seamlessly. Right? Camera operators do the same thing. They participate in helping get the message out. They help people experience worship online seamlessly. Security makes sure that people can worship without fear and that the vulnerable are protected. Children's check-in workers help create a sense of joy at arrival for parents and kids alike. So picture me this week in your cubicle that as soon as you start doing the mope thing this week, that at that moment, picture me jumping out from behind a bush or something and saying, no, 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 that's wrong. You know, you are not a guy who works at a car wash. You are not. You are. And then whatever that, that statement is, maybe I will. Maybe I'll follow you around this week and just jump out when you least expect it. <laughs> but, but the thing is to walk around with a sense of purpose about what you're doing. Yes, there are things that I think in the world that are a little more glorious than a lot of us get the opportunity to do. But if you think the people who are in those positions don't despair over whether or not their work matters, you're, you're, you're deceiving yourself. It happens all the time. Celebrities have some of the biggest emotional, spiritual vacuums inside of them as anybody. Oh, it'd be great if I was, you know, so-and-so. Really? Would it be that great? Because they don't want to be them. They've tried it on, and they don't like it very well. We always think that for somehow the purpose of God is at work and somebody else. I mean, come on, man. You're not just, oh, I work construction. Yes, okay, maybe you work construction. No, you're not. You're helping build things that matter to people. Uh, I'm a, you know, you're a teacher, but you think of yourself as a, as a child care worker. Are you, dude, I will jump out of a bush and scream at you if you think that way. Don't think that way. That's how Satan wants you to think. You're working with people's kids. You're open hopefully build character in those kids as well as sharp minds that later they participate in what's going on in the world in a way that helps the world become something closer to what God would want it to be. Most of us don't know the name Mary Anderson. Like most women of her generation who visited New York in 1902, she was riding along one particular wintry day she noticed how the whole city melted down whenever it rained outside. So as it rained or snowed, every driver was in a mad panic to clear their windows in order to see where they were going. So she looked at that and she goes, you know, somebody ought to design something that wipes water off your windshield. And so she goes home, 
And she gets to work and she designs the windshield wiper. So back then, it was all manual. You had like a handle in your car, and it would do this. In fact, I think my dad, my dad has a Model A, and I think it has one of those in the, in the car, a manual windshield wiper. I guess you only need one hand to drive and the other one to, to do this with. <laughs> but the lucky ones, you, you might have had a split windshield. In fact, uh, back in those days when she invented it, it some of them had split windshields, so one side could open. Uh, and I, but if it's snowing and you're in a blizzard, then it's not a great idea. You just get a mouthful of water and snow. She creates this solution to the problem. She obtains the patent for it in 1903. It expired in 1920. And after the patent expires, then everybody puts them on every car. And it would take almost two more decades. It took to about the 40s or 50s before cars really started showing up with windshield wipers. So what she hits on back then was a solution to a problem. The guy that created the iPod, his name was Tom Fidel. He called it an invisible problem, a problem people don't even realize they really have. Nobody's really thought about, hey, you know, do we all really need to just, because they would just roll their head, uh, the window down and stick their head out the window if it started raining. And again, picture that. If it's freezing and you've got a blizzard going on, I mean, you're sticking your head out the window. That's not a great, a great way to go. But we don't think about ways that we can make things different or better. So today, people don't think about her, even though she invented it. And they don't think about the guy across the counter at O'Reilly when you're trying to get a new wiper blade and how he helps you get your wipers done, (laughs) or the people who install them, or the people who manufacture them, the people who deliver them to O'Reilly so that you could go to O'Reilly and get your wiper. But all of them help play a part in helping you not crash in the rain. Much of our participation and work under this kind of, as we're thinking about vocation, falls into the maintaining and preserving kind of work. It's work that keeps chaos from breaking out everywhere. Bridge inspectors, for example. They do their work to ensure that public infrastructure is holding together the right way. Computer programmers, they take huge, huge, huge chunks of data, and they make it possible to sort that information and categorize it and interpret it. Janitors and garbage collectors promote public health through their sanitation work. Artists and musicians take raw materials of of color and sound. They rearrange them in ways that bring about beauty for the eyes and the ears to sustain us by by lifting our spirits. Lawnmowers and the manufacturers of lawnmowers make products that help our yards from being completely overgrown and tangled with weeds. Refrigerator salesmen help us with appliances to preserve our food. Auto mechanics keep our cars running and our construction companies make the houses we live in and the roads we drive on. And all of these ways, We participate in God's providing and sustaining and preserving work that work itself matters. Now, I'm going to give you a very tiny little thing to do this week. If you set an alarm, which you should do every day, regardless of if you have to get up or not. I heard somebody's uh, ringtone go off a second ago. That's actually my alarm clock. My wife hates it. Um, I choose it because it's really awful. And, it, and it, I can't sleep with that sound going on. Those of you who pick ocean waves or something as your alarm, I don't, <laughs> do you want to get out of bed or not? I mean, it's the question I have for you. But I'm going to challenge you to do this. Change your, your alarm, the sound of your alarm. Okay, just this week, change your alarm sound. Let that be a symbol to you that this week 
You're going to rise and shine and give God the glory, glory in a different way. I'm going to approach my work with a mission-centered approach. I'm going to choose to see my work as participating in what God is doing in this world. Just change your, change your alarm. You know, if you want to change it back to whatever garbage you have, to do that next week. This week, pick something else. If you, if you have the angry tone like I have to kind of force me to, to wake up, change it to something that hopefully will still get you out of the bed, but maybe it's different. Just a different sound. Just a little bit of a different sound. There's a uh, book Mitch Albom wrote called The Five uh, People You Meet in Heaven. And there's a film version of it where Eddie, the star character, he's played by John Voight in the movie. He was an amusement park maintenance man for most of his life. That's not a Christian book or anything like that. It's a typical Mitch Albom. It's spiritual, but kind of New Age-ish kind of stuff. But you kind of get the sense when you read his books, he wants to be a Christian. He just can't. He's not quite there yet. But in this movie... uh, after Eddie, the, the amusement park maintenance director, dies, he meets five people who help him then understand the meaning of his life. And the scene begins with him already having died. He walks out of the ocean, and then he sees this large amusement park where he once worked. So he comes out of the ocean, he walks into the amusement park there. Several hundred people are there, welcoming him, smiling at him, nodding at him, high-fiving him, doing all this stuff. And the, book sa- and the narrator says, all the accidents he had prevented, all the lives he'd kept safe, all the children and their children's children are there because of the simple things that he did day after day. And I don't know exactly what heaven will be like, but I hope at one point God shows to each of us how the work we did did something to help what he wanted to see done in this world take place. Even if it was just to put bread on the table for our families, to be an instrument of provision for our family or for the church or for these other good things that God was trying to do in the world. So my hope is that as a maintenance worker, custodian, nanny, corporate guy, corporate gal, a parent, somebody who works behind the scenes that your work, while it may not have been fully recognized in this world, that it will be in the age to come. That, you know, your boss in this life may or may not ever say to you, well done, but that God will. That's the part that matters. So as we gather around the Lord's table, I want to conclude with this blessing for, on our workers. And if, uh, go ahead, and those of you who need the elements, uh, you should have got them when you walked in, but if you did not, just put your hand in the air and we'll bring them to you. Here's a benediction before we pray. Wherever you go, God is sending you. Wherever you are, God put you there. God has a purpose in your being right where you are. Christ, who indwells you by the power of his spirit, wants to do something in and through you. Believe this and go in his grace, his love, his power. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, as we gather, we remember Jesus Christ, who... much as anybody that's ever walked this earth participated in what God was trying to do in the world. And he still, he had a job. He was a carpenter's son. Probably was a carpenter. Could have been a stonemason. One of the two. But we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He was tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin, the Bible says. And one of those temptations is to treat our work lightly, to Look at it as vanity, as something that doesn't matter. 
Take it lightly. So now as we gather around the Lord's table with bread and cup, we remember Jesus, his body and his blood. And we do so now. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, for the example of Christ, for the rhythms we see in his life, we give you thanks. Father, we recognize that from the beginning of this world, when you created this, you created us to be a part of what it is that you're doing with this place that you created, earth, that we're here to participate in what it is that, that you're doing in this world. And so, Father, whether, whether, it's a, whether we're stay-at-home parents or teachers or students or cops or firefighters or policemen, or, Father, we ask that you remind us of the purpose that you filled our lives with every minute, not just the part where we're asleep or just the part where we're not working, but the part that we're working, Father, has meaning that's important to you. May we honor you in all that we do. Father, we think we're thankful for Jesus and how he fulfilled his mission here on this earth, and we remember it now with bread and cup, his body and blood. We pray this in his name. Amen.